Let's pray before we look at God's word. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have spoken to us so clearly in the scriptures. Uh, and in particular, we thank you for the way we've been able to see already in this book of two kings, the way all your promises find their fulfillment in Jesus. And so we pray that as we look at this wonderful story from 2 Kings chapter 5, that we will again see how it points us forward to our Saviour. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I've always been a reader, even as a little kid, before I uh, went to bed at night, I would go and pick like five or six books and take them to bed with me and I would read them and I'd stay up reading. Uh, And because of that, I'd just read books over and over again because there weren't enough books in our house for me to read new books every night. So uh, when I had kids, when we had kids, I went to my parents and I got lots of the books that I used to read as a kid that I remembered and I got them for my kids. And one of the little books I rediscovered was this one, Naaman and the Little Maid. There's a picture of it I found. You can still get it secondhand on Amazon apparently, but there you are. Uh, It's a ladybird book. Uh, which was a whole series of books, there were hundreds of them. Uh, but amazingly, back then, secular book publishers printed Bible stories just because they were great stories, not like today, it seems. Uh, and I knew this story so well, I read it so many times as a kid, uh, and it's meant, it's always just been one of my favourite stories in the Bible. But I've never got to preach on it before. So uh, when we got to 2 Kings chapter 5, I made sure I got to preach this story. Uh, I'm not preaching the Ladybird book, I'm preaching the actual Bible uh, because it's a bit different. They make it a bit nicer in the Ladybird book. Uh, Now, as we look at the story though, what we're going to see is not just a great story. It's not just uh, a powerful story. It actually teaches us about God's love for all people. It's one of the themes we're going to see. It teaches us about how God's love is not limited. God loves all people. And more than that, it shows us what it really looks like to become a Christian what real faith and real repentance looks like. So let's get into it. Now, where are we in the story? Come with me, open up your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, please put up your hand and one of our brothers or sisters at the back will get you one. Uh, If you flick back to chapter 4 last week, we saw all these miracles that Elisha did for the people of Israel. So you've got to remember at this point, basically all of Israel, that's the northern kingdom, all of Israel had turned their backs on God, they were worshipping idols, but there was a small faithful remnant, just a few thousand people, that's all there was in all of Israel, just a few thousand people who kept trusting the one true God. And so we saw these stories last week of how God provided for that faithful remnant, for these faithful believers, how God provided for them through Elisha. But now what happens is it's like the camera moves out of Israel and moves and focuses in on one of Israel's worst enemies, one of the the nations they hated each other, the kingdom of Aram. Uh, And we meet this great general called Naaman. So look with me at it, chapter 5. My first heading I've called God is in control of everything and it starts from verse 1. So verse 1. Naaman, commander of the army for the king of Aram, was a great man in his master's sight and highly regarded because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. The man was a brave warrior, but he had a skin disease. Aram had gone on raids and brought back from the land of Israel a young girl who served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, if only my master would go to the prophet who was in Samaria, he would cure him of his skin disease. So here we've got this great man, but he is a pagan. He doesn't know the one true God. Aram is one of Israel's enemies. They worship one of the Baals called Rimon. uh, And Naaman has this problem, something like leprosy. We don't know actually what it was, but some skin disease that seems incurable. But we also meet 
The other important character in the story, this poor little girl. We don't even know her name. All we know is she was stolen from Israel in a raid and taken into slavery. Uh, And she says to her new master, there is a man back home, a prophet, who would be able to cure you. And she's talking about Elisha. Now, this little nameless girl is one of that faithful remnant. She is one of those faithful believers, like the people we read about in chapter 4 last week. If you like, she is the last story from last week's chapter. Uh, And even if we don't know her her name, she is a hero. She's taken off into another country as a little girl, yet she still trusts in the one true God. But what, what I want you to notice here is how God is in control of all this. See, Christians often have a simplistic view of God's sovereignty, as we call it, God's control over all things. When good things happen or things that we perceive to be good, we say, oh, wow, isn't God good? God's in control. But then when bad things happen or when things we perceive to be bad things happen, we think the devil did it or, or God must have lost control or God, whatever it is. But God is so much bigger than our simplistic view of things. And you see that here. So even though this general was against Israel, against God's people, any victory he won was because, look there in verse 1, he only ever won a victory because the Lord had given it to him. God is sovereign, not just over his people, God is sovereign over the whole world, even the enemies of God's people. More than that, this little girl being captured was a horrible thing. Imagine a little girl being taken into slavery in a foreign land. It's horrible. But here again, we see how God uses that horrible event to bring about salvation. So please remember this wonderful truth. Even when horrible things happen, even when the the bad guys are winning, God is in control. And Romans tells us God is working for the good of those who love him. Now let's move on. Second part, I've called it no faith in Israel. And this is from verse 5. So Naaman gets the king of Aram's permission. He sets off to Israel with massive gifts of gold and silver and precious cloth. Uh, You've got to understand, when it talks about the amount of gold and silver he's got, it's millions of dollars that that he is taking with him in in today's term. So, So he goes to the king of Israel and it's probably Jehoram who we met a couple of weeks ago. Remember Jehoram? A not very impressive king of Israel. Uh, But Jehoram gets in a a bit of a tiz when he comes, because remember, he doesn't actually worship the one true God. And he's made Elisha his sworn enemy. Uh, He's messing around worshipping the idols of Baal, and and Elisha's rebuked him about it, so they don't get along. So Jehoram thinks, what am I going to do? He actually thinks this is a political move. He thinks the king of Aram is setting him up to fail. Uh, It's an excuse to invade or something when he can't achieve this impossible thing because what hope has he got of healing a man of leprosy so look at verse 7 it says when the king of Israel read the letter he tore his clothes and asked am I God killing and giving life that this man expects me to cure a man of his skin disease think it over and you'll see that he's only picking a fight with me I think Jehoram like most of the kings of Israel is just really really sad because he knows about God do you see that there how he says, am I God? Even though he's turned his back on God and worships the Baals, he doesn't say, am I Baal? He knows it's only the God of the universe. It's only Yahweh who can raise the dead. It's only Yahweh who can cure leprosy. He knows only God could do something like this, but it doesn't occur to him to turn and ask that God to do it. It doesn't occur to him to repent and turn back to the one true God. He knows it is much more powerful than any idol he's worshipping. He actually reminds me of modern Australians 
who, when they're in trouble, say, Jesus Christ, and it doesn't occur to them to turn back to the Jesus Christ who can help them in their trouble. That is Jehoram. They know the God they've rejected is Jesus. Well, he knows the God he's rejected is Yahweh. Just compare his lack of faith to the faith of the little girl. Look back at verse 3. She says, if only my master would go to the prophet who is in Samaria, he would, see that total confidence, he would cure him of his skin disease. I hope you see the comparison. You have the king of Israel on the one hand who has all the advantage. He has all the scriptures up to this point. He has all the promises of God and yet he refuses to know God. And you have the little girl you would expect would have just assimilated into her new culture and followed their gods on her own in a foreign land. She trusts God and trusts his prophet. And I can't help but think of where Jesus talks about how the more you know, the more is expected of you. The judgment day will be awful for Jehoram. Don't be like Jehoram, who knew about God, knew lots of things about God, but did not know God or trust God. But now, we turn to the high point of the story. I've called it God's amazing grace. This is verses 9 to 15. Elisha hears what's happening. He sends a message to get Naaman to come to him. So Naaman and all his horses and chariots pull up out the front of Elisha's place now, now, we've seen a lot this week of how you're meant to treat important people. If you've been watching, you know, the funeral over in England and that sort of thing. There was a wonderful moment during the week where you remember where, where Princess, I always get the names wrong, but Princess Charlotte turned to George and said, we're meant to bow at this point. Because that's what you do when, when, when impressive people are, even, even though it was only the Queen's casket coming past, you're meant to bow. You're meant to show deference to important people. Not Elisha, which is why I like Elisha. You see, Naaman is an important man, but he pulls up out the front of Elisha's place and Elisha doesn't even get off the couch. He sends out a messenger. Look at verse 10. It says, then Elisha sent him a messenger. He only had to walk 10 metres, but he sends him a messenger who says, go wash seven times in the Jordan and your flesh will be restored and you'll be clean. At this point, Naaman cannot believe it. He has one of those, do you know who I am moments. I cannot... How can this guy be so rude to just send me on my way? He didn't even come out and see me and he sends me on my way with a few instructions. Look from verse 11. But Naaman got angry and left, saying, I was telling myself he will surely come out. He'd stand and aren't a barn his God and will wave his hand over the spot and cure the skin disease. And aren't a barn and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and left in a rage. Naaman feels humiliated by Elisha. He, he wouldn't even come out and see me. And I am a great man. And, and more than that, Elisha wasn't offering him the religious experience that he wanted. Do you see that there? He, he's sort of like, surely he could have put on a bit of a show for me. That's what my pagan prophets would do. You know, surely he could have waved his hands around a bit and said some magic words and, and, and said some prayers. And then he said, I don't want to go to your muddy little river. The Jordan River is one of the most unimpressive rivers in the world. Australia has unimpressive rivers. We, we, our rivers are hopeless, you know. But the Jordan River is worse. It's like a creek. That's what it's like. And it's muddy and it's awful. And he thinks, I've got cleaner rivers back in Damascus. If all he wants me to do is jump in the river, I'll, I'll go in a clean river, not a sewer like the Jordan. Now, I just want to pause at this point and draw something out for us. Why did Elisha do it this way, do you think? Why didn't he come out and introduce himself? 
Why, why didn't he make a big show and dance of, of curing Naaman? There's two reasons, I think. Firstly, Elisha wants Naaman to see that it isn't actually Elisha doing this. It's God's work. See, the simplicity, the lack of show, it shows this isn't some magic trick. This is God at work. Naaman came thinking that Elisha was like the pagan prophets, with the ancient equivalent of smoke machines and strobe lighting. He came expecting to, to buy a miracle, like you do at the, you know, the, the American televangelist shows. Elisha is showing him, no, 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 this is the real God of the universe. Secondly, Elisha wants to humble Naaman and make him realise he needs to bow before God. God opposes the proud and lifts up the humble. See, is Naaman willing to humble himself? Is he willing to set aside his pride and do what God asked him to do, even when it seems weak and even when it seems foolish and even when it seems unimpressive? And I can't help, and I've been thinking this all week as I've read this passage, I can't help but think of people's response today to the gospel, people's response today to the message of the cross. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians that the gospel, the message of the cross, is foolishness to those who are perishing. It's foolishness to people in the world. The idea that God would lower himself and become a man, and that is how God would show himself to the world, and a humble carpenter from Nazareth at that, the idea that his death would be God's answer to the sin of the whole world, that his death would pay the price for our sin, Jews were offended by it, Greeks laughed at it. And people still do that today. More than that, the gospel requires us to humble ourselves. The gospel says to you, you are a sinner. You need to admit your need to God. You need to say, I am a sinner who deserves God's judgment. I have to fall on my knees and trust in Jesus. See, the sad reality is that many, many people are like Naaman at this point of the story. The gospel is foolishness to them. They want something more impressive. They want a a more powerful message in the wisdom of the world. Or they're too proud to admit their need for Jesus and his forgiveness. But I pray that we, every one of us here, that we know that it is the weak and foolish message of the cross that is actually God's power for salvation. I pray that you know that. And so here is Naaman. He's storming off home. But praise God for Naaman's servants in this story. Isn't it wonderful that first of all, it was the little servant girl who sent him to the prophet and now it's his other servants who send him back to the prophet. They challenge him. Look at verse 13. It says, but his servants approached and said to him, my father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more should you do it when he tells you, wash and be clean? I think this is a beautiful comment. It's like he hasn't asked you to do anything difficult. He hasn't asked you to do anything at all. It's not like he's asking you to do something hard. Just give it a go. And so Naaman gives it a go. Look at verse 14. So Naaman went down, dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, according to the command of the man of God. Then his skin was restored and became like the skin of a small boy, and he was clean. That's just a wonderful moment. It's actually a real rare moment in the Old Testament, a miracle like this. And it can't help but make you think of Jesus, who, who healed multiple people in this situation. And again, I think it can't help but make you think of the gospel message. See, I sometimes say to people, all God asks is that you put your trust in Jesus. I plead with people, all God asks, it's so simple. 
Just put your trust in Jesus. God says to you, come and be washed. He doesn't ask you to do anything. He just asks you to receive his gift. Just do it. But people won't. But Naaman did. Well, if the story ended there, it would be great enough. But it's what comes next that's my favourite part of the story. Come with me. Fourth part, responding to God's grace from verse 15. Naaman can't believe it. God of Israel has cured him. And so Naaman comes to a real and living faith in God. To put it in our terms, he is converted. He becomes a Christian. He realises the truth about the world. He says, my idols I've been worshipping are a waste of time. There's blocks of wood and stone. He realises there's only one God, the God of Israel. He realises that that one true God deserves every person's worship, including his own. And so look at verse 15. It says, Then Naaman and his whole company went back to the man of God, stood before him and declared, I know there is no God in the whole world except in Israel. Therefore, please accept a gift from your servant. You see the change in attitude here? See how before it was the arrogant general saying, do you know who I am? Why won't you come out and see me here? What does he call himself? A servant. A servant of God and a servant of God's prophet. And so what does he want to do? He wants to make a gift. It's a wonderful gesture. He's come to know God. God has healed him. And so he wants to give a gift, but Elisha won't accept it. Look at verse 16. But Elisha said, as the Lord lives, I stand before him. I will not accept it. Naaman urged him to accept it, but he refused. Now, why was Elisha so insistent not to take the gift? Two reasons, I think. He wanted Naaman to know, same as before, he wanted Naaman to know it was God that did this, not him. Don't give me a gift. It's God who has done this for you. But more than that, and most importantly, it's because he wanted Naaman to know that you do not buy the grace of God. You do not bribe God to help you. And this is the heart of the gospel. The heart of the gospel is God's wonderful free gift of salvation. You do not pay for the grace of God. You don't earn it. You just accept it by faith. Brendan mentioned before why we don't pass a plate around here. That's one of the reasons. I don't want any person thinking you pay to hear the word of God. You don't. It's free. And so even though he can't give a gift, Naaman's obvious faith and repentance is so wonderful. Look at verse 17. Naaman responded, if not, please let your servant be given as much soil as a pair of mules can carry, for your servant will no longer offer a burnt offering or a sacrifice to any other God but Yahweh. See what he wants to do? He, he, he is totally converted, but he knows he's got to go back to his foreign land. And he says, but I want to worship the God of Israel. So he says, I want to take some of Israel with me. I, I don't want to worship Baal anymore. I don't want to worship Rimon anymore. I want to worship the God of Israel, but I can't travel back to the temple every week. So I want to take some of Israel with me so that I can worship Yahweh. Now, here's the thing. Because we live after Jesus and because, at least I hope so, because we've studied the book of Hebrews for the last two terms, I hope some of you, or many of you are sitting there going, oh, he doesn't understand. You can worship God anywhere. You don't need a temple, you don't need holy ground and so forth. And so you might even be tempted to, to sort of write Naaman off a bit. You know, you could quibble with whether he needed to do this. But I don't want you to miss how wonderful this is. You see, Naaman is going back to a place that hates God. And he, and probably his wife, 
and probably that little servant girl are going to be the church in that foreign land. They're going to be the only people who know the true God of the universe. And he's saying, we're going to stand up and say, we don't worship the foreign gods anymore, we worship Jesus. We worship Yahweh, the one true God. This is an incredible act of faith. It's an incredible sign of a true conversion. And if only more people in Israel had faith like this foreigner had. And for us, I want to say to you, isn't Naaman a model for us? He is a model for us of true conversion. He turned away from everything he used to know in his world to serve the true and living God. Naaman is a model for us as we go into our families, if they don't know Jesus, if we go into our schools, our unis, our workplaces, and we say, I worship the one true God. I follow Jesus and I'm not ashamed of it. And what I love is he's already seeing the costs there are going to be. He's already seeing the consequences of following the Lord. Look at verse 18. He says, however, in a particular matter, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master, the king of Aram, goes into the temple of Rimon to worship, and I, as his right-hand man, bow in the temple of Rimon, when I bow in the temple of Rimon, may the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. See what he's He's, so, he's already worked it out. I've got a conundrum. I've got to go back uh, and part of my job is going into Rimon's temple with the king and if I don't bow down with the king, if, if I don't, I'll die. But he's worked out already. His conscience is, is torn by this. He's worked out, that's not consistent with what I now know to be true. I worship the one true God. I don't worship Rimon. Straight away, he's seeing, if you follow God alone, you're going to have to make hard choices. Now, at this point, some people might say, and I read people who said it, they say, oh, he doesn't get it. He's already wanting to compromise. You, you can't have your cake and eat it too. But do you notice how Elisha says, go in peace? See, I think to an Israelite, or to you, if you wanted to go into the temple of Rimon as a Christian now, Elisha would say, no, don't you dare. Don't you dare bow the knee. But he knows the trajectory this man is on. He knows the situation. This, this man has come from nothing to understand the one true God. He's, he's a new believer. In time, he might find a way to talk to his master and deal with the problem. But now I think Elisha looks and says, how wonderful is it that you realize there's an issue? How wonderful that you're grappling with it. How wonderful that you see that following the one true God of the universe impacts everything. He hasn't got it all worked out yet, but wow, isn't he on the right path? I want to say to us here, I wish more Christians who've been Christian for years had as sensitive a conscience as Naaman does. I wish more Christians worried about how will I please God in all the difficult decisions I have to make in my life. Even if they don't get it right, I wish more Christians realized living for Jesus impacts everything. It's like how Paul described the impact of the gospel on the Thessalonian church. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 verse 9 on the screen. It says, for they themselves report what kind of reception we had from you when they came preaching the gospel, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. There's the description of you when you became a Christian, of any person when they become a Christian. We turn away from what we used to live for to serve the living and true God. And I want to say, if you want an example to follow, if you want an example of what it looks like to be an authentically converted believer, you do a lot worse than follow the example of Naaman.
Now, I wish the story ended there and Naaman and the little maid's version did end there. I thought that was the end of the story until I read my Bible. See, there's one last sad scene. I've called it the danger of denying grace. And you'll need to look at it because we didn't read it before. Verses 20 to 29, we didn't read this. But basically, Gehazi, uh, Elisha's servant, is listening in and he cannot believe that Elisha turned down a gift from this rich foreigner. He's, gosh, there's a gullible foreigner there ready to give you millions of dollars and you turned it down? And so he chases after Naaman and he makes up a story to try to con him out of some of his cash. See, you've got to understand here, Naaman would have assumed Gehazi was coming in Elisha's name. He would have assumed this was Elisha's way of saying, no, but I actually want the gift. Which is actually how lots of cultures still work in our world. There are lots of cultures, might even be the culture that you come from, lots of cultures in our world where you say no, but you mean yes. You know what I'm talking about? There's people where they say no, but you've got a way of saying, but actually I mean giving them cash. And he thinks here, he thinks, ah, oh, well, this must be a gift for Elisha and for God. He just didn't want to say it. So Gehazi takes the gift and he hides it for himself. But Gehazi has made a massive mistake. He has forgotten who he works for. He works for a prophet. And prophets have an uncanny knack of knowing what's going on. Because Elisha says to him, where have you been? Does that remind you of anything? The question? Reminds me of God speaking to Adam and Eve after they've sinned in the garden. Gehazi then lies about it and so look at verse 26. But Elisha questioned him, wasn't my spirit there when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? He's saying, didn't I see what you did? Is it a time to accept money and clothes, olive orchards and vineyards, sheep and oxen and male and female slaves? Therefore, Naaman's skin disease will cling to you and your descendants forever. So Gehazi went out from his presence diseased, white as snow. You're meant to see the horrible contrast here. You have the faithful foreigner, the man who knew nothing about God and yet trusted God, the man who was God's enemy is healed, but the slippery Israelite who should have known better is judged. Now what was the heart of Gehazi's sin? Think about it, he probably sinned in 53 different ways in this, this little story. He lied both to Naaman uh, and to Elisha. He was greedy, he was covetous, that's another command broken. He sinned in multiple ways. But the worst thing he did, the reason he was judged, is he distorted the truth about God. He distorted the truth about God. He undercut the grace of God. See, he was letting Naaman believe that God can be bought. He was letting Naaman believe you can bribe God. He was letting Naaman believe God is just like all the other pagan gods who you buy with your riches. It is a horrible thing to distort the truth about God. It's a horrible thing to believe wrong things yourself about God. But it is a horrible, horrible thing to lead other people astray. When the gospel was first preached to the Gentiles, so Naaman was just a foretaste of what happened after the death and resurrection of Jesus, when the gospel went to all nations, and praise God, because now we've heard it. When the gospel was first preached to the Gentiles, everywhere Paul went, false teachers followed him around, and they said, faith in Jesus is not enough. 
We know Paul tells you you've just got to trust in Jesus. Yes, Jesus died for your sins. Yes, you need to trust Jesus to be saved, but you need to do more than that. And that they said, you, you need to become a Jew. You need to be circumcised. They said, faith was not enough. You need faith plus works to be saved. They were undercutting the grace of God. And this is what Paul wrote. Look at Galatians chapter 1. It says, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel other than what we have preached to you, a curse be on him. If someone comes and tells you, do something, you're saved by anything other than faith in Jesus, a curse be on him. As we've said before, I now say again, if anyone preaches to you a gospel contrary to what you received, a curse be on him. It is a horrible sin to distort the gospel of grace. And yet here's the sad thing. Churches and individuals and denominations have done it for 2,000 years. Why we needed the Reformation when people like Martin Luther took us back to the Bible and reminded us, you are saved by grace alone. Not by anything you do, it is a free gift of God. You are saved by grace alone and it is by faith alone. Not by works so that no one can boast. And it is faith in Christ alone. I want to say to you tonight, never forget those truths. And if someone comes and stands here, even if it's me, and preaches a different gospel to that, then go, leave, kick me out. Never forget those truths. You are saved by grace alone. It is the free gift of God. You are saved through faith alone, not by works, and is faith in Christ alone. That is what Naaman came to understand. And I pray you know those truths too. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful story. And we thank you most of all for the way your gospel is for all people. Not just for the Israelites, but for all people. And for the way it has come to us so that we have found salvation. And we pray that we would never forget that your salvation is a wonderful gift. That we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.